The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. It is my pleasure to introduce Hannah Anderson to you. Hannah has been involved in teaching and discipling women since college and knows firsthand the joy of watching women embrace all that God has destined them to be in Christ. She lives in Roanoke, Virginia, where she spends her days with her husband, mothering her three elementary-aged children, and writing in her spare time. Her book, Made for More, is available here for purchase. Please join me in welcoming Hannah. Good morning. Get this up. I cannot tell you how much joy I have had the last few days being here at Park. Um, I love desperately what I'm about to share with you. And when I can find an audience (laughs) to listen to me or to engage with the ideas, I I am in heaven. Um, But before we get there, I want to share a little bit about where I come from, who I am, how I got to this point with the book and these ideas. Um, I am from Roanoke, Virginia. Does anyone know Roanoke? Roanoke? Okay, good. Roanoke is on the western part of the state. We have, we call them mountains. I, I think they're mountains, but I'm not so sure after being here. But we live in um, the Blue Ridge Mountains, Appala- part of the Appalachians. And uh, my husband is a pastor of a country church, tucked away in those mountains, and we spend our days as a family living life in community with the folks there. And it is, it is my husband's dream. I mean, we live in Mayberry, but it is such a joy. We have an elementary school, we have a volunteer fire department, we have a branch of the library, and I think we have a Lions Club. And that's where we hang out. And it is, it is a wonderful place for us. God took us there about three and a half years ago. My husband's from the area. Um, so we were heading home in many ways. Church is not new to me. Um, becoming a pastor's wife was not on my list of things to do. But my life, God really just directed that for us and for me. And I was in church from childhood. Um, You know, I grew up hearing the gospel. I grew up knowing the scripture. But something happened for me um, when I was about 18, 19, 20, in those college age years where you're kind of stepping away from um, your, your parents' home and you're establishing yourself and you're engaging new ideas. And I remember this wonderful, deep re-understanding of the gospel. Now, I had always known the gospel, always knew that Jesus Christ loved me, that he died for me, but something happened in that point in my life where the truth of grace, the truth of my own helplessness, just burrowed into my heart in ways that I had never understood before. And the result was so much joy. And as we were singing um, in Christ Alone this morning, 
it was as if all those truths were new and fresh for me at that point in my life. And I was rediscovering things that I had heard, but I really never understood. And so I had this kind of a spiritual growth spurt. And it was just joy every time a pastor would get up and, and speak about Christ's love for me and he would teach from the scripture and I just was eating it up and, and I felt so alive. It was the first time in my life where, where it made sense and, and I felt this supernatural life growing up inside of me. And then we would talk about womanhood <laughs> and I found this tension all the joy would evaporate. Everything I was loving and experiencing in the gospel, when the conversation shifted to, now let's talk about your identity as a woman, suddenly just shut down. And I, I kind of pulled back. And, and it wasn't that it was aggressive or legalistic or heavy-handed. I just felt this sense of, huh, that's not as exciting as this. <laughs> that sounds a lot like obligation. That sounds a lot like more duty. That sounds a lot like do better. This didn't tell me that. <laughs> the gospel told me Christ loves you. He has grace poured into your life. He is forming in you his son. And this said, well, let's talk about where your role is and what you should be doing and what you should not be doing and how you should do this. And I felt this unbearable tension. And early on in my 20s, I married pretty young, um, 22, which I guess for some people is older. <laughs> um, but, you know, at first it was, okay, let's just buckle down and do this. Let's just make this work. And I would kind of ignore this tension. I would just kind of put it back in the back of my mind. But then I started talking with other women and with my friends, and we would kind of say, yeah, well, what do you think about that? Like, we didn't, we didn't want to reject what we knew the scripture was teaching us. But we also knew it wasn't quite fitting with everything else the scripture was teaching us. And so I had this disconnect where my life was operating on the principles of the gospel in one respect. And in another respect, it wasn't. And I didn't know how to join those two. And somewhere in my late 20s, in my early 30s, I realized I had to take this internal struggle seriously. If God was good, which I believe he is, if his ways are beautiful and he is full of grace, if the gospel makes sense, then I had to make sense of my identity as a woman and as a person. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't hard things in the scripture that we have to submit to. But what I am saying is that we can't live our lives out of a sense of obligation. We can't lose ourselves. If God is good, 
if the gospel is true, then I should expect to find my foolish sense of self in it. I should not feel like I have to deny core parts of who I am in order to pursue righteousness. Now, we're going to get into self-denial, yes, as part of it, but it was this tension of saying, I believe God is good. I believe his ways are beautiful. So what's going on? Why doesn't this feel good to me? Why doesn't this seem beautiful? And so what I had to do was back up and reassess how I understood the conversation. I want to be very clear here. It wasn't what I had been taught. It's what I hadn't been taught. There was a piece missing for me, and maybe one that I just ignored myself. Maybe one that in my own flesh and in my own sinfulness that I gravitated toward the easy applications and the easy just tell me what to do. So when we start talking about this tension, I want to be very clear that I had to find what was lacking from the conversation, what was lacking in my own understanding of both the gospel and my sense of self. What was the thread that could tie these two together in a holistic life for me where I didn't feel like I was living this gospel joy on Sunday morning and then the rest of the week working out of obligation as I went through my life as a woman? And, you know, it's funny. You usually find the truth that's missing at the beginning of the story. If you miss it at the beginning... You don't have it through the rest of the story. So as I started studying, as I started learning from my own process, I started at the beginning of the scripture. And that's where we're going to go today. So if you have a scripture with you, if you have a copy of the scripture with you, turn to Genesis 1. And while you're turning, I want to say this. Coming to you now... How many years later, after going through this process, it may sound like a nice, neat package that was very linear. Like, I had this personal crisis, and then I thought about this, and then this idea came into play, and everything else just lined up for me. That's not the way it happened. You see, God was at work for several years in my life, slowly tweaking this, slowly tweaking that, to prepare me so that when I finally came to this text... I could finally see what it said. I didn't have eyes before to understand this. And so this is how growth happens so often. You know, I have loved seeing all the infants of this church and all the babies and all the expectant mothers. And if you think about how an infant grows, it's not like one morning he wakes up with this huge ear And the next day he wakes up with this huge foot and all the pieces kind of grow. He grows organically. He grows holistically so that every part of his life is growing and inching outward. And that's how spiritual growth happens. There's not a lot of times where you can just see this linear process and it's like this, 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 this. This is an organic experience. So when I... 
come to what we're going to talk about today, you're probably going to say, um, that's not new. I've heard that before. And what I experience, and I hope you will experience, is yes, you have, but let's grow in your depth. Let's grow in your understanding of truths that maybe you've heard before, but you never knew to connect. Or truths that you didn't understand the significance of in relationship to the gospel. So when we come to Genesis 1, you are probably familiar with this text. Okay, what do we come to Genesis 1 to learn about? Anyone shouted that? What, like, if typically we're talking about Genesis 1, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Creation. Good. If we flip over to Genesis 2, typically we're going to talk about men and women, or the roles, or the relationship between men and women in Genesis 2. If you flip to Genesis 3, we're going to talk about the fall and the introduction of sin into the world. Here's the thing. Before the scripture talks about you as a woman, before it talks about you as a sinner, it talks about you and your identity in a different way. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man... This means mankind. This word means mankind. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female He created them. You see, before the scripture talks to you, even as a woman, it speaks to you in terms of who God is. The most fundamental thing about you, the core identity of your life and of everything that happens to you, is that you bear God's image. You bear the nature of God, and he is the central thing about you. Now, we don't usually think about ourselves this way. If I introduce myself to you, I tend to talk about the descriptors or the specifics about my life. You know, I'm a woman, I'm a pastor's wife, I live in Virginia, and all of those things are good, but I can't learn who or what I truly am in my essence by those descriptors. Here's an example. I have this circular thing on my wrist. Now, if, if we want to say, what is this? What is it for? Okay, we're asking a question of identity. I can look at it and say, oh, it's silver. Or I can say, it's round. Or I can say, it's metal. I can say it's shiny. I can say it's tacky. I can say it's pretty. But nothing of those descriptors, none of those descriptors tell you what this is. Until I say, this is a bracelet, 
or even this is a piece of jewelry. You have no idea what this is. And see, a lot of us, when we talk in terms of personal identity, we are landing on the descriptors. We're landing on our role in life. We're landing on maybe what we look like, what our job is, our position in relationship to other men, in relationship to whether we have a husband or we don't. We land on these descriptors without understanding what is the core identity. Now, those descriptors are important and they have a place and I don't want us to just say, oh, that's not important. But what I'm trying to explain to you is, if you don't have a foundation of core identity as an image bearer of God, none of the details make any sense. They don't have any meaning apart from this core truth. Only knowing that we are made in God's image will answer the question that we all wrestle with. And what's interesting to me is I went through this process on my own of not quite fitting into my identity and not quite understanding who I was or what I was supposed to be doing. And I talked to other women and I saw it among my Christian friends and I would get on the blogosphere and there was just kind of this chit chat and this, this whole kind of angst about what are we doing? Are, are we fulfilling our purpose? What is our purpose? But it's funny because this dilemma is not just among Christian women. This is a fundamentally human dilemma. And your friends and your peers, regardless of whether they're men and women or women, are asking these core questions. Who am I? What am I here for? What is my purpose? I mean, this question sells millions of books. Million. I had um, a chance to be with some of the leaders last night, and we talked about the book Eat, Pray, Love. You know that book? You know the movie? I mean, how much money did Liz Gilbert make off of that? And she was tapping into a woman's need to say, where do I belong in this big world? Who am I? You know, it's, this question has propelled things like... Um, Betty Friedan's writing in the 60s, the core question that she was writing toward when she wrote the feminine, excuse me, the, the feminine mystique was the problem that has no name. The problem that we can't even express the sense of listlessness and longing. This question is so foundational to who we are that this is where Paul starts when he is evangelizing at Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17. He's in the midst of a group of highly philosophical people who are kind of seeking wisdom, seeking religious experience. And he comes to them and he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Our existence is tied to God himself. And so here is the joy of this truth. If you know God, you'll find out about yourself. If you learn about who he is, you'll learn more about who you are. John Calvin said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. 
You see, sometimes we might be afraid that indulging these questions would be a little bit self-focused. Like, there's a world to save, so I don't have time to sit around and worry about my identity. I'm just going to get up and do it. But if it is true that our core sense of self is tied directly to who God is, then this is not a self-indulgent question. This is about you coming to know God himself, and that is never a waste of time. So the scripture tells us that we are made in God's image. We are his image bearers, which means, okay, that's exactly the point. It sounds great, and you probably have even heard, you're an image bearer of God. But what does that mean? What is the significance of that? Well, one thing it means is that you have a distinct calling. Because this is your core identity, you have a calling that fits with that. Um, Have any of you heard of organic design or organic architecture? I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania near um, one of Frank Lloyd Wright's homes called Falling Water. Now, the theory of design that Frank Lloyd Wright worked upon was that the form of something, the way something is shaped, the, the identity of something, is directly connected to what it's going to be used for. So he built this beautiful vacation home in the middle of this wooded area. And because it was designed to be a respite from the smog of Pittsburgh, he He designed this home to feel like you were living in the woods. And very clean lines, very subtle palette. And so the the concept is that the way you're made directly corresponds with what you're going to be doing. So I would like to say that God is the first organic designer. He is the one that says... You're an image bearer, and that means you will do something based on how I formed you. So let's talk about an image. Let's talk about what an image does and what it is. Now, you probably all looked at an image this morning. If you looked in a mirror and you saw your own face, you saw an image. Your face is not the image. The reflection in the mirror is the image. So in a very basic sense, when we say that you are an image bearer or you image God, you are reflecting him. You are showing what his nature is like. You are showing who he is. So the first calling on your life as an image bearer is to show what God is like in this world. It is to show his nature, his kindness, His grace, his love, his mercy, his gentleness, his goodness, his long-suffering. Does that sound familiar? It should. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. That is what you are called to be. You are called to reflect his nature. But an image also has another understanding. It has the idea of representation. Representation. 
you are to represent him. If you think back to the ancient world, um, if you think of the Roman Empire, you have this vast, sprawling empire with the capital city at Rome. And Caesar would rule from Rome, but he has all of these provinces, and he has all of these lands that he's conquered, and he can't be present there. So he sends a representative to represent him in those lands. If you're familiar with the story in Scripture of Christ's um, death and crucifixion and resurrection, Pilate was a representative of Caesar in Jerusalem. Another way that kings would represent themselves in a place where they did not actually, um, could not actually be, is they would take money, they would take a coin, and they would stamp their image on the coin. And then that money was the only money that the entire empire could use. In Jerusalem, they couldn't come up with their own currency. They had to use the Roman currency in part in part, so that every time you had a coin in your hand, you remembered who your king was. You remembered who you owed loyalty to. So part of image bearing is representing God here on this earth. So not only are you supposed to look like he looks to reflect his image, you're supposed to do what he does. You are supposed to do whatever he would do. As his representative, you are a vice regent. You are an under queen of his kingdom here on this earth. And as I said before, you know, this sounds a little too good to be true. You know, it it sounds like this is kind of a self-centered, self-esteem kick. I mean... This kind of language doesn't really line up with what we know about ourselves as sinners and wretches. And am I getting off on this really self-centered approach? I would be if God himself hadn't written this. I would be if God himself didn't tie himself to you. He's the one that stamped his image on you. He's the one that said, my interests are bound up in her interests. My glory is bound up in her good. You see, if you are accurately fulfilling your calling to show forth his nature, to do what he does, who do people see? Do they see you? Do they see me? They see God. God is glorified. When I live in this calling to show forth his nature, when I live in this calling to do what he does, they don't look and say, wow, Hannah is being a great Hannah. They say, wow, that woman looks like Christ. And they see Jesus. And this is the joy of being an image bearer. God's good and my good are tied up in the same thing. He gets glory when I fulfill my purpose of what I'm supposed to do because he made me and called me to show forth his glory. 
Now, at this point, you might be saying, okay, this is really inspiring, but I thought we were talking about womanhood, and I thought we were talking about the gospel. I mean, you did introduce it that way. What does this have to do with the gospel? Everything. Because the story is not finished. Let's move to Genesis 3. Now, I'm presuming that you are familiar with what happens in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we have the man and woman who were created to reflect God's nature, to do the work of stewarding the earth, of being his vice representatives, of being king and queen over creation in the garden. And we see Eve alone and having this conversation with the serpent about a tree. A tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know what happened. The serpent said, oh no, this is where your good is found. This is where you will be fulfilled. I know, I know, God said, don't touch it. See, he's trying to keep you from your full flourishing. Like, if you take of this, that's when you'll really be like him. You'll be his equal. And see, the painful irony of this is Satan tempted Eve with something that she already had. Satan said to her, if you pursue this, if you embrace this knowledge, if you find knowledge of yourself in this tree, you will be fulfilled. You will flourish. You will be equal with God. You will be like him. Eve was already like him. She already reflected his nature. She already was doing what she was supposed to do in terms of doing what God would do. But we know what happened. She rejected her core identity in favor of something else. Now, we use terms like rebellion and disobedience, and that is true. But we can also describe what happened here as a woman looking for knowledge about herself apart from God. She rejected her core identity as an image bearer and said, that tree will tell me who I am and it will make me better than I am now. And this is what sin is. Sin is any time that we pursue something different than God's nature. Anytime an image bearer decides that another thing will fulfill us, we sin. Because this is what happens. We're, we're reflectors, remember? We reflect God's nature. When we turn the mirror of our life away from God's nature, and we say, no, that tree, that job, that relationship, that role will give me knowledge. You know what we end up reflecting? That thing. 
We're not reflecting God's nature anymore. Now we're reflecting that small, temporal, tiny, limited thing that we have turned to to find our sense of knowledge. And how does Romans describe sin? Anything that is short of the glory of God. You see, our lives are designed to reflect this grand nature of God that is glorious. Our lives are supposed to be glorious. Our lives are supposed to be full and abundant because we're reflecting the full and abundant nature of God. And when we turn to something that isn't glorious, that's smaller, we come short of what we're supposed to be. Sin is not simply a list of do this, don't do this, don't have this type of relationship, don't go to this place. Sin is pursuing something that is less than God. So every time we define ourselves by our accomplishments, every time we define ourselves at a core purpose by the approval of other people, every time we look to our work to give us our sense of self, every time we look to our children to give us our sense of self, every time we are coming short of the glory of God and we are sinning. And these little gods that we look to in our life to give us purpose and calling can't protect us. They can't take care of us. The reason I was struggling and the reason I felt so small and tired and listless in my soul was because I had placed womanhood as my identity. Now, womanhood is a good gift from God, but as soon as I start worshiping the gift instead of the creator, I am in sin. And so the smallness that I felt in my soul, that kind of didn't pan out the way I was expecting it to. I really thought if I got that thing, if I, if I got married, I'd be really happy. I really thought that if I had the kids and I had the Pinterest house, that I would really be fulfilled. I really thought that if I got that job promotion or, or I got into that academic program and I got my PhD, that I would finally know myself and I would be happy. But we're pursuing these gods that cannot fulfill us. You know, in 1 Kings, there's the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, where he encounters the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal are crying out desperately to their false gods. They are cutting themselves and they are begging their gods to come and send down fire from heaven onto their sacrifice. And some of the saddest words in scripture are this. No one answered them. No one paid attention. You have these people in 1 Kings who are desperate for their gods to answer them and to give them the fulfillment. They had invested their whole lives in these gods. And when it came time for those gods to take care of them, no one answered them. No one listened to them. 
And I think this is what happens to us so often as women. For whatever reason, we are sold narratives that these things will fulfill us, that these things will give us identity, that these things will make us valuable, whether it's being a certain size and exercising and dieting until you get there, whether it's the love of a man, whether it's a position. We have been said, you need these things to be happy and fulfilled. This is where you will find your sense of self. And the scripture says, no. Your calling, your identity is bound up in God's nature. And only when you pursue him will you ever know who you are. But a lot of us are living limited one-dimensional lives because we are reflecting limited one-dimensional things. And this is where the gospel comes in. This is where the thread connects from all the joy I knew in Jesus Christ with my personal identity. In John 10, Jesus says, I have come to give you life. And I have come to give it to you abundantly. And he's not simply talking about eternal life and heaven someday. He is talking about a fully formed existence here and now in this earth. This is life eternal to know him. And when we know him, we will reflect his nature. We will do what he does and we will know ourselves. But we have a problem, don't we? We're stuck worshiping these idols. We're stuck in our sin. So how do we get back to what we're supposed to be doing? Like, how do we move from this place of obsession with identity and small things to a full-out obsession with God? And I think the, the easy thing that a lot of us would default to is, well, I'm just going to work harder. I'm just going to work harder to find my identity in God. But that's not what this, we don't get off that easy, okay? That actually is the easy way out. Because what the scripture tells us is the only way back to what you're supposed to be is through Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus Christ descended from the glories of heaven and took on human flesh, he became an image bearer. He became human. The image, the perfect image, became what we are. And then he lived a life that showed forth to everyone around him, this is what God is like. And then he was crucified. And when he died, our old selves died with him, the scripture tells us. This nature that is so prone to go after idols, that nature died with him. He became the representative for me as the image bearer. And when he was resurrected three days later, I was resurrected with him. And it's as if at that point, God hit the reboot button on creation. And Jesus Christ became the second Adam. This is how Romans speaks about him, isn't it? He is the second Adam recreating this world, recreating you. And everything about your life and your identity, everything about your Christian walk is this process 
of being recreated to the image bearer that you are destined to be in Genesis 1. It's as if God himself is stooping down again into the dust. That's what Psalms calls us. We are dust. And he is reforming and he is reshaping and he is breathing his Holy Spirit into you, the breath of life. And you are becoming like him again through the process of your sanctification. This is why we say Christ's likeness to be like the ultimate image bearer, to be like God himself. When I finally put these two truths together, it changed everything about how I was thinking of myself. My life day to day was no longer this process of just attempting to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Suddenly, I am an image bearer of God. I choose what reflects God's nature because that's where I will find my greatest happiness. My purpose, my calling is bound up in his nature and in his goodness. And suddenly, it didn't feel like obligation anymore. It didn't feel like laws. And it didn't feel like pressure. And I don't know how this is hitting you this morning. But I want to take just a few moments to let this soak in. I want the word of Christ to dwell in you richly in these moments. In our next session, we'll discuss, so what? You know, like, if this is true, that's all great, but what are the actual ramifications of that in my daily life? And we'll walk through some of those ideas. But in these moments, as you're thinking, what am I pursuing that isn't God? What... What idols are in my life? Where am I trying to find my identity even in good things? Even in serving the church? Even in serving your homes? Even in serving those in your workplace? Good, good things. But if they become the source of your sense of self instead of God... They are dangerous things to you. How would you know? How would you know where you're finding your identity? Well, what do you spend your time doing? What are you always thinking about? When someone has a conversation with you, what do you talk about all the time? Like, what words come out of your mouth? Um... I believe it's Proverbs. It says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever your heart is pursuing and loving, that's what's going to come out of your mouth. What do you fight to protect? What can make you angry? You know, it's funny because sometimes for me, 
my personal stumbling blocks are I need to be respected. You know, I need people to value my work. I need them to respect me and know that I contribute. And I've got purpose here. And I am meaningful and I'm valuable to you. So you need to respect me. And so when someone disrespects me, I get angry. And then I have to prove to them, I have to protect that, and I have to prove to them that they need to respect me. And I'm not saying this happens, but, you know, it might be that occasionally I end up in online conversations and comment sections, (laughs) or on Facebook, because I need them to affirm desperately my ideas and to respect my ideas. That is an idol for me. And the Holy Spirit reveals it over and over and over again. As you think about your own life, and you think about your unique struggles, I also want to give you this encouragement. God's not leaving you here alone. If your heart says, I want that. I want that fullness. I want to reflect his nature. I want him to be the center of my existence and my identity. But man, I am struggling with this. I am struggling to let go of the need to be respected. I am struggling to let go of my need to have the perfect body. I am struggling to let go of my need to be in a relationship. Of course you are. Of course you are. You are helpless without Christ. And it is his grace to come to your life and say, here, I'll take that from you. You know, we often think of giving up our idols, like we've got to work this thing up where we can let go. But if you've ever been around toddlers and they're grasping that favorite toy... What does it take to get it away from them? Come up and say, here, let me have it. I'll help you take that. I'll help you give it to me. And see, some of you are probably going through some really difficult times in your life where your idol is under attack. And for all of your efforts to keep that, you're struggling and you know it's not right. And God is slowly prying your little fingers off of it. Let him take it. Let him pry those fingers back. Let his Holy Spirit do the work in your life of targeting whatever you're clinging to. And you know what it is. You know. And submit to him. Because I promise you, when you let go of that... And you're able to find your full, flourishing sense of self and his nature. You will find yourself. And all your questions about who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing and what is the purpose of my life. They don't easily wrap themselves up. But you will finally be in a place where you can start to answer those questions. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so humbled and so thankful 
for your goodness to us. You are so kind and gracious to commit yourself to us and say, my glory is bound up in her good. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would make our hearts willing, that you would let us believe that our life, our abundant life that we long for, is truly found in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.